if we can understand our own mind and how it works, that will give us the key to happiness, not understanding somebody else's mind. In the same way, if we try to change our own mind, that will enable happiness. We cannot change anyone else. We might be able to influence other people through our conduct, through our speech, through our choices, through our own happiness, but not by trying to change them, ourselves. <coughs> That's my opinion. <laughs> okay. These readings are from the Buddha. Why do beings live in hate? I'm going to preface this by reminding all of us that the world now is full of hatred, but there is never a time when it wasn't. So what we're experiencing in our age is a decline. There's always been decline. Rise, decline. Improvement, degeneration. And we cannot control that. But we should not be intimidated by it. And we should not enable it to take hold of our minds. So if the decline in the world around us leads us into terrible trepidation and fear, what can we do? We can practice. We have to feel the urgency of that and work with a sense of urgency. Normally, if things are going well, it's very easy to become complacent. But death is bearing down upon us year by year. We don't notice that. But suddenly, when there's violence plus our own mortality to deal with, then we start to notice, or when we lose a loved one, then we start to notice when we get sick, then we start to contemplate how to face this. So, why do beings live in hate? At one time, Sukha, the ruler of the devas, asked the Blessed One, Beings wish to live without hate, without harming, without hostility, without enmity. They wish to live in peace. Yet, they live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and as enemies, by what fetters are they bound, venerable sir, that they live in such a way? Now this is a very good question. Instead of saying, why do people live in hate? Why do they do this? Saka asks the Buddha, what fetters do they have? What is binding their minds that causes them to live in hatred? And the Buddha says, ruler of the devas, it is the bonds of envy and hostility that bind human beings so that although they wish to live without hate, without hostility, without enmity, and to live in peace, yet they live in hatred, harming one another, hostile, and as enemies. We can contemplate our own lives. 
do all of us live peaceful lives? Before there was so much terrorism around us, did we live peacefully? Did we feel peaceful? Were we happy? Did we have no enemies? Or did we have grudges, bear hatred towards others, feel hated by others, etc., etc.? Just to contemplate that, of course. Because we have in our own hearts greed, we have hatred, we are deluded. This is why those forces are active in the world. If they are active in us, why wouldn't they be active in most human beings? So what we're seeing is an escalation, but it's not from nothing. We cannot de-escalate other people's hatred. So where does the work begin? This was the Blessed One's reply. And Saka was delighted and exclaimed, So it is, Blessed One, Fortunate One, through the Blessed One's answer, I have overcome my doubt and got rid of uncertainty. Then, having expressed his appreciation, Saka asked another question. Venerable Sir, what gives rise to envy and hostility? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? When what is present do they arise? When what is absent do they not arise? Envy and hostility, ruler of the devas, arise from liking and disliking. This is their origin. This is how they are born. This is how they arise. When they are present, they arise. When these are absent, they do not arise. Liking and disliking. The way to freedom has no preferences. I'm sure you've heard this before. So it's because we prefer one set of conditions to another. We have very strong opinions. Our opinions are fixed in many cases. We believe that we're right. And due to those strong opinions, our views become fixed and we are capable of oppressing ourselves or another. We compare ourselves to others. We become envious and mean-hearted. But sir, what gives rise to liking and disliking? They arise ruler of the devas from desire. And what gives rise to desire? Desire arises, saka, from thinking. When the mind thinks about something, desire arises. When the mind thinks of nothing, desire does not arise. So what's his next question? What gives rise to thinking? Thinking, ruler of the devas, arises from proliferated perceptions and notions. When these proliferation of perceptions and notions are present, thinking arises. When they are absent, thinking does not arise. So what do we do here? We're trying to still the formations of the mind. 
the mind is like an ocean, but it's a turbulent ocean when it's not trained. It just has wave after wave of thought, because that's just what the mind does. It has this function of being like a thinking machine. An untrained mind proliferates in many areas of thought that are not wholesome, that are not conducive to wholesomeness, that are not conducive to peace, to friendliness, to skillfulness, to generosity, to kindness, to clarity, to wisdom, to freedom from suffering. So, many of us feel caught in these restless, distracted trains of thought, wave after wave after wave. And through this practice we are trying to subdue that restlessness of mind. Otherwise we live in a state of perpetual exhaustion and trying to fulfill the desires that arise from thinking and that arise from craving. We try to fulfill them and they never end. They are relentless, wave after wave after wave. There is no contentment in the mind until we can train it. In another reading entitled Anxiety Due to Change, the Buddha talks about this agitation of mind. Disciples, I will teach you agitation through clinging and non-agitation through non-clinging. Listen and attend carefully. Yes, Venerable Sir, the disciple said. And the Blessed One answered, How is there agitation through clinging? Here, the uninstructed worldling. He means one with an untrained mind, who is not a seer of the noble ones, and who is unskilled and undisciplined in their training, who is not a seer of superior persons, and is unskilled and undisciplined in their practice, who regards form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. Here we are. We're caught up clinging to forms, believing that we are solid self, and we prop that self-perception up time and again by satisfying the desires of this self that we inflict on ourselves that is insatiable, that will never be satisfied because it's an illusion. And it comes out of the ignorance in our own minds. Then the Buddha describes it. This form changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, one's consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form. Agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing one's mind. Because the mind is obsessed, one is frightened, distressed, anxious, and through clinging becomes agitated. So when change arises, we experience anxiety. 
Right now there's a very high level of anxiety in the world. And you know what? People are making money off of it. Don't you think the TV stations, radio stations, internet stations, websites are making a fortune off of our anxiety? And so they're whipping it up as much as possible. Why are we listening to all this proliferation of fear and anxiety when we have the possibility to bring our minds to stillness right here and now? That doesn't mean that we don't care about the world. It means that we care more about the world than if we listen to the world. One thing we must learn to do is not listen to the world, not prop up the world, not prop up our ego, our self-view within the world and spin it around to bigger and bigger dimensions, believe in that unreality and suffer over it. This is not the way to freedom. This is the way to anxiety, panic, terror. We worry about the terror out there. But much of our time is spent repeating the terrible statistics. Why do we do this? We, we become obsessed with these changes and they worry us. And then the worry becomes an obsession of the mind. How difficult it is to overcome worry. I'm a worrier, I know. How difficult it is, and I have good reasons to worry. And they're A, B, C, but it's all rubbish. <laughs> there is no reason to worry. Worry is an obstacle to freedom. It's an obstacle to clarity. It's an obstruction of wisdom in our own minds. And if we believe in our worry, then we just keep recreating it. We have to be so mindful of what the mind is doing and what we're enabling it to do. So if we just sit here of a Saturday afternoon and do as much as we can not to worry, and then as soon as we go out the door, we turn on our devices and start worrying again, what is that? It's ignorance. We're just not seeing, we're not connecting the dots. So if we really want to stop the world, we have to put the world down. Somebody asked me a question. What would you say to those who are considering renouncing? How can you possibly renounce the world when you can't renounce your own worry? Renouncing the world and shutting yourself up in a monastery is not the answer because you take your mind with it. And I won't let you in. <laughs> we have enough worry already. <laughs> we just had somebody show up recently who really wanted to join the monastery. And I said, you're not ready. You have to do more retreats. Because you're full of opinions and anxiety. And you've got to whittle that down a little bit. You have to renounce all of the built-up illusions of a self, at least to a certain extent before trying to do this. It just gets worse in the monastery. <laughs> it does, because you've got no distraction, practically. People start to freak out, because the mind loves distraction, but it actually does not 
grow healthy with distraction. It grows healthy through stopping. And when people get the gist of it, once they've been in the monastery for a while, they start to feel the peace of stopping. It's like, this makes so much sense. Stopping makes sense. Giving up the world makes sense. But we are so flattered by the world. We're so mesmerized by it. It makes us feel alive. And we reinforce each other's anxiety through our continuous spinning out in fear and worry and panic, cowering in the face of the evil. But what we must examine is our own condition. It does not help us. We know what the world is. The world is full of vicissitudes, full of problems. But we have an opportunity to develop a state of mind that is transcendent. It's not rooted in worldly aims and values and activities. And that's the key. If we stop engaging in what the world is feeding us, then we have a chance to come to our senses and realize it's illusion. It's not true. That doesn't mean that people aren't killing each other. It doesn't mean that there isn't something really unwholesome and dangerous going on. But the way to resolve it is not from the outside. It's to begin with our own condition. We cannot change the world because the nature of the world is to live in hatred and delusion and violence. Just name a time when that didn't happen. There is only one state where there is no suffering, where everything comes to cessation, and that state is permanent. That's Nibbana. Nibbana is the state of the unconditioned, and the world is bound up in conditions. Anything which is bound up in conditions is impermanent, is full of suffering, and is not what we are. It's empty of the truth. So, oh dear. Okay, I got carried away. Agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing a person's mind. And because the mind is obsessed, one is frightened, distressed, anxious, and through clinging becomes agitated. We regard feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self. Or we regard it we regard self as possessing consciousness, or we regard consciousness as in-self, or as self in consciousness. We really believe that the self is there, and we keep propping it up. We turn things over this way and over that way until we can really have this self firmly planted in our minds. With the change and alteration of consciousness, One's consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change. Agitation, worry, and a constellation of mental states born of worry, born of preoccupation, with that change of consciousness, obsess the mind. 
Because the mind is obsessed, we are frightened, distressed, and anxious, and through clinging, we become agitated. It is in such a way, disciples, that there is agitation through clinging. And how is there non-agitation through non-clinging? Okay, so we cling. We're grasping beings. Anybody here not clingy? (laughs) We are. We have to face it. We're so caught in clinging. Is there any day that we don't cling to something? A friend, a kind of food, an experience, even a mind state. Come here and have this blissful samadhi and then you walk out clinging to it. Sign up for the next retreat quick because you want that same mind state and you're going to get it and you become greedy for it. This is clinging and it brings suffering. And we're worried, will I get it? Why didn't I get it? I did exactly the same thing I did last Saturday and I didn't get it. What's the matter with me? I better start taking some antidepressants because I'm now I'm really worried that my practice has fallen apart, etc. This is the nature of the ignorant mind. Now the Buddha talks to us of how to give up clinging. How, he says, is there non-agitation? Non-agitation. Not to be agitated. How is there non-agitation through non-clinging? Here, the instructed noble disciple, one who is a seer of noble ones, who is skilled and disciplined in the Dhamma, who is a seer of superior persons, who is skilled and disciplined in the Dhamma, who does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. That form of his changes and alters, despite the change and alteration of form, his consciousness does not become worried with the change of form, anxious, preoccupied with the change of form. There is no agitation, no constellation of mental states born of anxiety with the change of form that remain obsessing his mind. Because the mind is not obsessed, there is no fear, no distress, no anxiety. Through non-clinging, we do not become agitated. So non-clinging means letting go wrong view letting go this notion of a solid being. We create our own selves and these selves will never make us happy. They will only make us continually miserable, anxious, distressed, and unpleasant to be with. Then the Buddha goes on to say, one does not regard feeling a self. These are very important I'm rushing through, I know. Every one of these topics is a week's worth, a month's worth of study, discussion, understanding, meditating upon. One does not regard feeling a self. Our feelings, our perceptions, our mental formations, the physical experiences that we have in the body and the mental 
feelings, mental states, volitional formations or fabrications of the mind, and moods that we experience. They're impermanent, they're full of suffering because they're changing all the time. How can they not be suffering? We see just by trying to sit still how difficult it is to sit still, to stand still, not to move about, not to change position. So when the mind keeps changing, 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 we never find the still point. We never find the peace. And this is not what we are, but we keep moving, looking for this true self, which doesn't exist. So the suffering is endless. Then, when all these changes continue, we become agitated because we cling to what is fleeting and it changes. So we keep clinging, clinging, clinging. And what we're clinging to continues to be fleeting. So we're never... Even our little happinesses, the great meal we had last week, the beautiful person we met, the holiday we went on, the raise in our job, in a few years will be redundant. It's all impermanent. This is not something to get depressed about. This is just to understand the reality of impermanence in our life. The whole life begins with birth, develops through teenage misery, (laughs) adult, sometimes happy, then getting old, getting sick, and death is bound to come. What is there to cling to? What? We have to think about these things, contemplate them wisely. So, despite the change and alteration of consciousness, if we understand the Four Noble Truths, if we understand suffering, its origin, the possibility of its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation, we don't get agitated when change happens. We don't cling to what's impermanent. We abandon these fleeting perceptions, forms, feelings, mind states, consciousness, all the states of consciousness that arise and cease at every sense door over and over again a million times a day. We don't cling to any of it. We just abide in the middle with a sense of appreciation. We're alive. We have the ability to know, to develop awakened awareness. We practice kindness, compassion. We develop wisdom. We develop equanimity. That's the middle way. Then we don't cling to anything at all in this world. And we go beyond anxiety, agitation, distress, despair, fear, terror. We find peace through non-clinging. That's the way of the noble ones. Sounds impossible? Well, if it weren't possible, the Buddha would not teach it. It is possible. But we have to be wise and we have to see, what am I doing? How am I creating suffering moment by moment in my own mind? And when we walk out the door of this building, we keep looking with the eye of wisdom, 
at our life and bring order into it. Set priorities. What's important? What am I clinging to? What's making me unhappy? And rid ourselves of that. Abandon that. Be present. Be conscious of the present. Be awake to the present. Just practice waking up moment by moment. Right there and then, we become a little bit wiser, a little bit more fearless, a little bit less anxious. And the practice takes hold in our daily life, not just in the rare moments of retreat experience where we can keep the door on the world shut for a few minutes. We really have to learn how to strengthen our hearts enough to keep the door on the world shut so that it doesn't overwhelm us. It's doable, but it's hard work. We suffer, but there is also an ease that comes from understanding suffering because suffering is essentially and Thankfully, our teacher, it's not for nothing. I'll leave that for now.